This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we sit under your word this morning, as we submit ourselves to your word, I pray that you would mercifully grant us to encounter you, the living God, that we might receive love and grace, and that you would transform us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I want to begin this morning by talking about a complicated church construction project. Not the one, Lord willing, that we are about to undertake. I'm trusting the complications are are behind us with that one. The one that I want to talk about is one that happened long ago in a land far away, in Italy in the 15th century. It's a true story. Back in 1464, the church commissioned what they hoped would be a glorious piece of art, a statue of one of the greatest biblical figures for the decoration of the cathedral in Florence. And so a huge block of marble was cut from the finest Tuscan quarry, and a very skilled Italian sculptor began to chip away at a 20-foot hunk of rock. But soon after starting his work, he abandoned the project. The marble was a massive lemon. It was full of imperfections. It was too narrow. It had too many structural flaws, had too many tiny holes pockmarking the surface. And so just like that, this precious piece of marble became a piece of junk that was too flawed to use and too expensive to move. And so they just left it exposed to the elements in the courtyard of the cathedral. And over the years, one or two other great sculptors attempted to resurrect the project, but each one of them quit very quickly after beginning because they all agreed the marble was just bad. And so all told, that slab of rock sat for nearly 50 years in the courtyard of the cathedral. That is until a young artist came along by the name of Michelangelo, who's 26 years old. Michelangelo looked at this rock and he saw something different in the old stone. And so for three years, night and day, he chipped away at the stone. And from a discarded trash piece of marble, what emerged was one of the great triumphs of human skill and creativity, the statue of David, which has captivated the hearts and minds of humans for over five centuries. The transformation of this stone was so remarkable that one of Michelangelo's contemporaries described the work as a kind of miracle. He described it as the bringing back to life of one who was dead. And I love this story. I love it not just because it's one of the great stories of art history, but much more I love it because it beautifully illustrates what the gospel of Jesus Christ can do. The gospel has the power to transform flawed and imperfect people into the most beautiful thing in all creation, into saints, into redeemed men and women who live for the honor and glory of God. And we catch a glimpse of this power, of this power of the gospel in our passage this morning in 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 to 17. In this short autobiographical passage, 
the Apostle Paul describes how the mercy of God transformed his life. Just as Michelangelo saw through the flaws and imperfection of that marble to create the David, so God, in his mercy, sees through Paul's great sin and makes a saint out of him. And as Paul describes his conversion and his call to serve Jesus and Jesus' church, we see that mercy does a lot of the heavy lifting. Not once, but twice, Paul repeats the short, amazing phrase, but I received mercy. So we're going to spend some time this morning reflecting on the creative power of God's mercy. The main thing I want us to see this morning is why Paul receives mercy and what that means for us. So why does Paul receive mercy? Well, the first reason that Paul receives mercy is really very simple. Paul needed it. He was a sinner. And if mercy is understood as not getting the punishment that we actually deserve, this makes sense. Our need, specifically our need for God to overlook our sin, is the only prerequisite for God's mercy. Our desperate need is the only thing that we can offer to God to receive his mercy. And so Paul receives mercy because he's a sinner. But Paul is no ordinary sinner. He was the best sinner, which is to say he was the worst sinner. Two times Paul describes himself as the foremost of all sinners. He's at the very front of the line of all the bad guys. So what's Paul talking about? Why would he describe himself as the worst of all sinners, the foremost? Well, Paul lists three charges that make him worthy of God's judgment. Three reasons why he was the foremost of all sinners. He was a blasphemer, he was a persecutor, and he was a man of violence. And Paul doesn't go into detail here about his past because the person he's writing to, Timothy, would have been well aware of it. But if we read the book of Acts, particularly chapters 7 through 9, we'll see what Paul's talking about. If you read these chapters, you'll learn that in his misguided zeal, Paul spoke lies about Jesus. He was a blasphemer. And not only that, he terrorized the church and he tried to destroy it. He harassed the disciples. He hunted them down. He threw them into prison. He even oversaw the first public execution of one of Jesus' disciples. And so without knowing it, Paul became a fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy in John chapter 16. Paul persecuted and killed the disciples because he thought by doing this, he was offering worship to God. And this is what Paul means when he says that he acted ignorantly in unbelief. He thought he was doing the right thing by persecuting Christians when actually he was doing the most wrong thing. Before becoming a Christian, Paul was essentially a first century religious terrorist. Paul was no ordinary sinner. He was in fact the greatest threat to the startup movement that was the first century church. Paul was, in other words, the very last person you would expect to receive God's mercy and the very first person you would expect to receive God's judgment. If anyone had a target on his back for a lightning strike from heaven, it was Paul. But Paul was shown mercy. Instead of a lightning bolt of judgment, Paul receives a lightning bolt of mercy. In Acts 9.3, we read that while on the road to Damascus, as he's on his way to kill Christians, to hunt them down, 
lightning does strike. We read, a light from heaven flashed around him. And Paul is struck by God's mercy. Paul was confronted by the risen Lord, Jesus. He was confronted for his sin, for his blasphemy, for his persecution, for his violence. But ultimately, Paul receives mercy. Despite having every reason to do so, God doesn't condemn Paul. He calls Paul, and he commissions Paul to serve him and to serve the same church that he was trying to burn down. So why? Why does God do this? Because mercy. Because the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Because God is rich in mercy and he looked on Paul, the foremost of all sinners, with the eyes of mercy. In verse 12 we read that, Paul says, Jesus judged him faithful or trustworthy, even when he was acting in ignorance and disbelief, despite all appearances to the contrary. In other words, Jesus saw something different in Paul. Jesus looked on Paul with the eyes of mercy. Without being blind to his grave sin, Jesus saw beneath the twisted face of a man with blood on his teeth. God saw through the sin of a man breathing threats and murder against Jesus' beloved bride. Jesus saw through all of that ugliness, and he envisioned the beauty and the glory of a man made fully alive by the gospel. He saw through the present reality of Paul the terrorist to the future reality of Paul the apostle, the servant of Christ's church. And mercy is what makes all of this possible for Paul. And I think it's important to see that God's mercy doesn't just wipe the slate clean for Paul. God doesn't just forgive his sins, cancel his debt, and zero out his balance. God's mercy is much more dynamic, much more creative than this. As verse 14 tells us, God's mercy opens the floodgates of God's grace and God's love. And these deep waters wash away the old Paul, and they give birth to the new Paul. You see, God's mercy is a heavenly alchemy. It turns base metals into gold. In Paul, we witness God's mercy turning the greatest threat to the church into one of her greatest assets. Mercy turns the would-be destroyer of the church into the man who, after Jesus, is probably the man who's done the most out of anyone in history to build up the church. This is what mercy does. And as we keep reading our passage, Paul goes on to offer even more texture to why he received mercy. In verse 16, he tells us a second reason. In verse 16, we read this, It is for this very reason that I received mercy, Paul writes, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display the utmost patience, making me an example to those who would come to believe in Jesus for eternal life. Paul receives mercy to be an example for us. I love how Eugene Peterson puts this verse in his translation of the Bible in the message. He says, God chose his mercy to Paul, who is public sinner number one, so that he could show him off, so that he could show off Paul as evidence of his endless patience to those right on the edge of trusting Jesus forever. 
And so in verse 16, God gives us insight into the broader logic of his mercy, the purpose behind it. In showing mercy to Paul, God is making a kind of cosmic a fortiori argument, an argument from the greater to the lesser, and he's using Paul as his prime illustration. God is saying this, look, if my mercy is big enough and powerful enough to transform somebody like Paul, there's hope for you. There's hope for me. And I think this means that God looks at us just like he looked at Paul, the foremost sinner. When God looks at us, he doesn't focus on our flaws or our mistakes or the bad decisions we've made, the secret sins of which we are so ashamed. Of course, he's not blind to them, but he sees beyond the imperfections of our past and even of our present, and he sees what's possible for us in Jesus because of his mercy. Just as Michelangelo envisioned the David buried deep beneath beneath tons of imperfect stone, and just as God considered Paul trustworthy despite his great sin, so God mercifully sees beyond our sin, and he sees our grace-filled potential in Christ. He sees what he can make of us, what we can become when we are made new in Jesus by faith and transformed by the grace and love of Jesus that overflows to us because of God's mercy. Paul receives mercy as an example for us. If God was merciful to Paul, if God could be endlessly patient with that guy, he can be endlessly patient with us. And as beneficiaries of God's mercy, we can become benefactors of God's mercy. Strengthened by the Holy Spirit, we can give that which we have received. We can show mercy. We can practice patience. And so create space for God's grace and love to transform even the people who are least deserving of it, each one of our lives. So to draw it all together here for us, Paul receives mercy as an example for each one of us. Whether our lives have been marked by ambivalence to the things of God, or like Paul, have been more marked by antagonism, God's mercy is greater than our greatest sin. The reach of God's mercy is never too short for us. All we need to do is receive it, to turn from our sin and believe in Jesus. And this is one of the reasons why we celebrate Holy Communion every week. You see, over the centuries, God's people have found the Eucharist to be one of the deepest wells of God's mercy. It's a place where mercy is found, where mercy is received. And so I want to end this morning by reading a beautiful poem that ties together many of the themes that we've been talking about this morning in the sermon. And this poem functions as a kind of bridge between this word and the Holy Sacrament. And you have the poem, it's uh, in a little pink half sheet in your bulletin if you want to follow along as I read it for us. The poem is called Love Three, and it's a poem by George Herbert, uh, George Herbert, a 17th century Anglican priest and poet. And in the poem, it's, we, what we see is a dialogue between God, who is love, and someone who feels unworthy to be in the presence of this love. And as the poem progresses, we see how mercy softly and tenderly transforms this humble sinner into somebody who's welcomed at God's table. 
I'll read the poem for us. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on me. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. In just a few moments, we're going to come to the Lord's table together. And this is the table of mercy. At this table, the God who is loved, the God who bore the blame of our sin and shame, will feed us with himself, with his life, with his body and his blood. And as we feed on him this morning in our hearts by faith, may we do so with thanksgiving. May we who receive the priceless treasure of God's mercy offer back to God the only thing that we can, our thanks and our praise. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.